welcome back to Everyman Academy. My name is Professor JT. Class is now in session. Today we will be discussing the book Madame Bovary, written by Gustave Flaubert, published in 1856. Time marches on, and our journey through classic literature has taken us many places. For the first time, we now visit the country of France, the land of fine cuisine, romance, and the birthplace of revolutionary thought. We find this book, Madame Bovary, smack dab in the middle of the 19th century, the growing pains of industrialization before the birth of modernity. This was a time when the old religious order was being challenged by secular thinking. Intellectuals pontificated about the ideal structure of society. Mass communication and consumerism on the horizon as modern conveniences proliferated alongside many accelerations in both communication and transportation that made anything seem possible. As far as the story is concerned, in Madame Bovary, we see the initiation of a literary tradition called realism. The prose of this book is plain-spoken, matter-of-fact. The effect of its language to create a story is grounded in the true-to-life, even in the mundane. In keeping with previously discussed works, most notably Jane Eyre, Madame Bovary sparked a bit of a moral panic due to its depictions of adulterous behavior. The trial was thrown out, and the legacy of the novel lives on. Any press is good press, so they say. As I've discussed many times before, I find particular utility in viewing history through the lens of two groups of people, the large mass of common folk, be them slaves, peasants, serfs, or somewhere in the middle, and then the much smaller ruling class, the aristocracy, who pass wealth and their privilege to rule through hereditary succession. Now, of course, this is an oversimplification but through the journey of self-education by reading the classics, we are able to zoom in further and develop a more nuanced understanding regarding the complexities of our human condition. In Pride and Prejudice, we saw how some fight to preserve their social status through making mutual alliances that keep the good life going. Madame Bovary, otherwise called a provincial life, is a story about those common folk. The provincials, we've been here before. The start of our journey with Don Quixote, and then, of course, in the Charles Dickens classic, Oliver Twist. This time, Madame Bovary provides a mid-19th century slice of life that is a fascinating snapshot I cannot wait to dive into. So without further ado, let's get into it. This book is a page-turner. Flaubert was a perfectionist. He anguished over every last word, and it shows. Coming off of Uncle Tom's Cabin, which was an interesting contrast, Harriet Beecher Stowe had something to say and used a lot of words to say it. The story was in the background, in keeping with the larger social message. When reading Uncle Tom's Cabin, I got the picture, but the prose was less elegant. The mental images the story conjured up for me were less vivid than what I experienced when reading Madame Bovary. This shows us that less truly is more, and this is why I implore you to experience the book for yourself. The power of language to evoke memories, feelings, images, and thoughts in our mind. There is no better example than Madame Bovary. There are three characters in the book who are, at one time or another, called Madame Bovary. You see, it's not a name, it's a title. The first character we meet is Charles Bovary, and Charles's mother is the first woman who bears the title of Madame Bovary. She loves her little Charles. His father is a rough and tough philanderer. Not a bad guy by any means, but he's a far cry from the type of dad who takes his boy fishing or plays catch in the front yard. They're not poor, but they have to work to get by. 
Charles's mother wants to ensure a different life for her little boy, so she sent him to a private school, even married him off to an aging woman of 40 or so with a little bit of money. That's when we meet the second Madame Bovary. Their relationship is pretty weird. She's overly controlling, and Charles is like half her age. Charles is trained to be a doctor, well, sort of. He's like the 19th century French version of a physician's assistant. We are still only in the first chapter, and Charles's wife dies suddenly. That's the last we hear of the second Madame Bovary. The good news is, Charles is finally free to explore the world a little bit, and before long, he is making house calls to the country. When tending to a farmer's broken leg, he meets his daughter, Emma. This is Madame Bovary number three, the main character of the book. She sat down again and picked up her sewing, a white cotton stocking she was darning. She worked with her head bent. She said not a word, nor did Charles, the wind. Coming under the door, rolled a bit of dust across the flagstones. He watched it drifting, and he heard only the pulse beating inside his head, and the cluck of a hen, far off, laying an egg in the farmyard. Hear what I mean? We can sense the chemistry and feel the sadness already. You see, Emma is a child who has lost her mother. Now Charles is experiencing love at first sight, and the farmer thinks he's a pretty good match. With his permission, he asks Emma to be his wife. She agrees, and Emma Rowalt officially becomes Madame Bovary. At the wedding, we still don't know what Emma is feeling, but become absorbed in descriptive detail concerning the customs and traditions of a countryside matrimony. They move in together, and Charles is over the moon, dumbstruck with love. He couldn't stop himself continuously touching her comb, her rings, her scarf, Sometimes he gave her big wet kisses on the cheek, sometimes a string of little kisses along her bare arm, from her fingertips to her shoulder, and she held him away, half laughing and half annoyed, just as one would with a clinging child. Before her wedding day, she had thought she was in love, but since she lacked the happiness that should have come from love, she must have been mistaken, she fancied, and Emma sought to find out exactly what was meant in real life by the words felicity passion and rapture, which had seemed so fine on the pages of the books. There it is. Emma's a reader. She's a dreamer, and she's not satisfied. We know what she wants. She's grounded in a need, a drive, and hunger for blissful satisfaction. She gets a sense from the words off the page in the books that she reads, there is something more to this life. In chapter 6, we get a bit of her backstory. As a child, she went to a religious convent, training to become a nun. These were the seeds sown, her cravings and desire to experience passion and pleasure. Familiar with the tranquil, she inclined instead toward the tumultuous. She loved the sea, only for the sake of tempests. The meadow, only as a background for some ruined pile. With a mind that was practical, even in the midst of her enthusiasms, she had loved the ballads and literature for its power to kindle her passions. This mind rebelled against the mysteries of faith, as she became even more irritated by the discipline, which was a thing alien to her temperament. I'm reminded of Jane Eyre and her yearning to also kindle her passion, Nathaniel Hawthorne romanticizing the days of pagan festivals. There is a hearkening back to mysterious, hidden knowledge, esoteric wisdom only accessible by those who have been initiated into a priesthood, like in ancient Egypt or the Babylonian tradition, or by the Greeks with their Eleusinian mysteries. Emma is an Eve, so desperately yearning for a taste of a forbidden fruit, yet there's no one there to offer her a bite. Then one day, 
the big moment arrives and she has a brush with the good life. Secretary of State under the Restoration, the Marquis in his attempt to re-enter political life was beginning his campaign for the Chamber of the Deputies. In the middle of the summer, he had an abscess in his mouth, which Charles had cured quite miraculously with a nice touch of the lancet. The steward, sent to pay for the operation, reported that evening how he had seen some superb cherries in the doctor's little garden. The Marquis asked Bovary for a few cuttings, made a point of thanking him in person, noticed Emma, thought she had a nice figure, and didn't curtsy to him like a milkmaid. Consequently, it was not felt at the chateau that it would be overstepping the bounds of condescension, or, on the other hand, be committing an impropriety to send the young couple an invitation. One thing leads to the next, and they're invited to the chateau's big old royal party. Well, Emma loves it. She goes crazy. She can't wait to get a taste of the good life. Emma, as she entered the room, felt immersed in warmth, a mixture of the scent of flowers and fine linen, the smell of roast meat and the odor of truffles. Emma arrayed herself with the meticulous care of an actress making her debut. She did her hair in the style the hairdresser recommended, and she put on her muslin dress, laid out on the bed. Charles's trousers were too tight in the waist. When the party gets going and people start dancing, Emma wants part of that, but she doesn't want anything to do with little Charles. One of the dancers, addressed as the Viscount, came back a second time to invite Madame Bovary to dance, promising that he would guide her and that she would manage splendidly. They began slowly and went faster. They were turning. Everything was turning. Around them, the lamps, the furniture, the paneling, the parquet floor like a disc on a spindle, passing near the doors, Emma's dress at the barn, their legs entwined. He looked down at her. She looked up again at him. A lethargy came over her. She stopped. They set off again, and quickening the pace, the Viscount, pulling her along, disappeared with her to the end of the gallery, where, panting for breath, she almost fell, still spinning around, but more slowly, she slumped against the wall and put her hands over her eyes. When she opened them again, in the middle of the room, there was a lady sitting on a stool there with a gentleman kneeling before her. She chose the Viscount, and the violin began to play. Every eye was on them. Round and round the room they went, she holding herself erect with head down, and he in his fixed pose. Shoulders back, arms curved, chin held high. She could certainly waltz that woman. They carried on for ages and exhausted everyone else. Conversation lasted a few minutes longer, and then, after saying good night, or rather good morning, the guests retired to bed. You know, I could go on, but I think you get the picture here. I'm not just going to read the whole book but maybe you've gotten a taste and understand why you need to read this for yourself. If you've been thinking about reading one of the classics, I don't hear about this one too much, and yet I think it is a perfect entryway to the Western canon because its use of language is so easily absorbed. When they move in part two, the book really opens up into a new French neighborhood. The pharmacist Homius, he is a fascinating counterpoint to Emma. The pharmacy in this little inn in the center of the town that they move to is kind of like where the neighbors collect, they talk, and they consider ideas. The pharmacist is a man of science and reason. There's many interesting monologues that he goes on that tell us a lot about this time. Emma is one of those women that just naturally attracts the eyes and attention of men. She seems to get a lot of enjoyment out of the power that she has as a woman. We don't know exactly what she's thinking, but based on the behavior, we can only imagine she knows what she's doing. She reels in a guy eventually, and he kind of comes and goes. He's just another young, naive kid like Charles. Eventually, Monsieur Rodolphe Belanger moves to town. 
He's the local elite guy in his fancy mansion, and he quickly catches the eye of Emma. He's a big bad wolf, and he's going to sink his teeth into Emma. Emma plays right into it in a really interesting scene. It's one of the most well-written parts of the book. There's a fair in town. It's kind of like an industrial fair with revolutionary ideas going on. Lots of farm animals, pigs, and horses, and cows, all congregating during speeches. The speeches are talking about workers and farmers. It's hearkening to a new age while also considering the way it used to be back in like the Greek times. The power of the farmer cultivating the earth. We can smell the pigs and all the hay in their pen. While all this is going on, it jumps back and forth between Emma and Rodolph. Does not tell us in explicit detail, but it very much hints that there's some nasty stuff going on here. It feels like this culmination that's also very set in its time. This story about this adulterous woman has bigger themes, ones that are placed in the Western canon, our great history. Gustave Flaubert is not only hinting at this new era that's on the horizon with industrialization and changes in hierarchy and authority. There's also an echo to the origins of the Western canon, the Greek and pagan gods. Can you tell from what I've read so far how interesting and absorbing it is? I read this book the quickest out of all of them. 244 pages or so, gone in a week. I ate it up every moment, and I probably will return to it just because of the ease in which it's written. You can't help but fall into this thing. It's not really necessary for Emma to keep a home when she has enough money to at least afford modern conveniences. And then, of course, there's the local moneylender. He preys upon Emma. We get a sense that the neighborhood is watching this whole drama unfold. I'm reminded of Scarlet Letter, almost as if we're watching from the eyes of this larger group of people. The neighbors and the town folk, you know, love is blind, but the neighbors aren't. Emma racks up debt. Well, things continue to escalate. Where does it lead? Where does it lead? Where does the downward spiral go? Well, just read the book to know. As we continue on this journey of self-education through reading the classics, the pharmacist his yearning for a new age of enlightenment. He's very well-read and educated. He also knows the power of words. If there's one thing about this book that I love is it tells us the power of language, not only in the way that we read and absorb the text, but in what happens to the characters. Emma is inspired to seek passion because of her reading habit. She reads romance novels. She's not happy with Charles. She says, a man surely ought to know everything, ought to excel in a host of activities, ought to initiate you into the energies of passion, the refinements of life, all its mysteries. But this man knew nothing, taught nothing, desired nothing. He thought her happy, and she resented his so solid calm, his ponderous serenity, the very happiness that she brought him. I can't help but empathize with Charles. He's just a nice guy. In the first chapter, we see him grow up so quickly, we can't help but empathize with Charles. I wonder if Mr. Flaubert was jilted or experienced heartbreak himself because Emma almost feels like an ex-girlfriend he's angry with in a way. I wonder if it's autobiographical. I know that he was not married, Mr. Flaubert. Emma was absorbed, busy reading books, Wicked books, things written against religion where priests are made a mockery, where speeches taken from Voltaire. It all leads to no good, my poor boy, and anyone with no religion always comes to a bad end. The twists, the turns, the passions, the words, the mysteries. Well, Emma wasn't one of those special few. She may have read the books, but she never truly knew. And that's going to do it for this episode of Everyman Academy. Hope you enjoyed this little taste of Madame Bouvery. I've gone into detail in the past in other books, went straight into full synopsis and spoiler territory. I'm not going to do that here. 
When you take it all in, it really helps contextualize the lineage of our modern age. The greatest story ever told would continue when we return for next class while we're getting into Russia with Leo Tolstoy, the book Anna Karenina. So until next time, class dismissed. <laughs>